Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, Episode 30, The Great Gazoo and a Talking Dog Edition. I'm your host, Tasha Robinson, Senior Editor at the Dissolve. The 2015 Oscars ceremony is just two days away as we release this podcast, and since everybody else is already talking about who's going to win, we decided to just focus on what the winners are going to say. So we're going to get into Oscar speeches, the good, the bad, and the inspiringly teary. Then Hot Tub Time Machine 2 inspired us, and we'll talk about sequels that came back missing key personnel and how far the prestige of a familiar actor in a familiar role can go. We'll circle back to Oscar speeches for Down to the Wire game about what people say during their brief award spotlight, and then it's time for our timed recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned. This podcast will hit the red carpet just a couple of days before the 2015 Oscars ceremony, where we can, as usual, look forward to hearing a couple dozen nervous, excited people try to remember the names of everyone they've worked with over the past couple of years and recite them all before the microphone disappears into the stage or the Jaws theme starts playing or whatever they're doing this year so we don't have to actually listen to the people that we're watching the show to see. We're talking about Oscar acceptance speeches, which run the gamut from teary to political to rote to hilarious to insane. Since everyone in this room with me right now has won at least a couple of Oscars, and they have strong opinions about how winners should behave, we thought we'd talk a bit about what makes a good Oscars acceptance speech, what we love to hate and see at the mic, and what we're hoping to see this weekend. And the participating in this segment Oscars go to... Rachel Handler. Scott Tobias. And joining us via Skype, we have special guest and our Oscar columnist... Jen Cheney. Scott, you, when we first talked about uh, doing this segment, you practically pounded the desk, uh, indicating that you had some very strong opinions about this. What are your very strong opinions about, uh, about what makes an Oscar speech? Well, first of all, I think when you talk about what makes a good Oscar show, a lot of that responsibility seems to fall on the host. But once you get past the monologue, uh, the ceremony is really about the awards and about the speeches. And I think the, the people who win, while, while this is a big moment in their lives... They need to take some responsibility for making the show entertaining. You know what I'm saying? Well, they are theoretically entertainers. They are exactly. They're entertainers. So while they have people in their professional lives who deserve mention for supporting them, I think those thank yous need to be reserved for private, right? They have plenty of people to thank, but I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear the list of <laughs> managers and agents. Nobody does. Who wants to hear that except for the managers and agents? I think it's wasting the, the a billion people's time. But I mean, if you're a cinematographer and you really want to know who the, the best cinematographer in the world at this exact moment is using as an agent, maybe that could be used. I, I don't maybe. know. Maybe. Yeah. That's again, again, they'll figure it out. But I, I feel like I feel like there's got to be some responsibility to 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 do to saying something entertaining. These are entertainers. So they're, although they're, to be but, fair, I, I like I said that flippantly, but I mean, do keep in mind that a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of the people who are winning are not actors and are not writers they're technicians they're, they're technicians and again they're, but they're in the business they're sure the business. but you know somebody who is a great set decorator is not necessarily a song and dance man but i think i think there's another thing too where even if it say say it is a very personal emotional moment for you to be which it would be if you're winning winning an oscar i mean then then they'd be say something you know sincere and emotional and you know, and memorable. You know, don't don't not a rote list of names. I don't want to. Nobody wants to see that. So I feel like you know some different things you can do. Uh, you can be gracious to your fellow nominees. I always find that that a good touch. Uh, you can uh, say something personal or political. I actually like when when the Oscars get political. It's, it can be awkward, but uh, at least it's sort of lively. Um, I think you can be conceptual, uh, like uh, the Frozen winners last year. I thought were very funny. We have so many people. 
to thank. Luckily, everybody's name rhymes. Adina Menzel. Kristen Bell. Jennifer Lee. Peter Del V. Chris Buck. Chris Beck. John Lasseter. Happy, Happy Oscars, Oscars to you. Let's, Let's do Frozen 2. Tom McDougal. Chris Montan. Aremus. Metzger. Besterman. The Anderson. And the Lopez clan. John Groff. Josh Gad. Mom, Mom and Dad. John Bazzetti and our team back east. And Kate, Brooklyn, and last but not least. Our girls. Katie and Annie, this song is inspired by our love for you and the hope that you never let fear or shame keep you from celebrating the unique people that you are. Thank you, we love you. We love you, thank you. You know, and if you're not into giving speeches, I think you can just be like Joe Pesci and dig, give, them, give them like five, five words and leave. So, so but, I, but I honestly think they need to think about, like the, the nominees need to think about if they, if they get on stage, you know, how do I, how do I uh, captivate the, the viewing public? Because uh, it's, cause pulling a list of names out of your, out of your uh, jacket is not uh, sufficient I, I don't think. Jen, what's your take on uh, on poetry, politics, and uh, and random prose at the Oscars? <laughs> well, I partially agree with uh, what Scott is saying in the sense that reading a really long list of names is definitely not entertaining and uh, it's not a good idea. However, you know, I think that maybe thanking a select few people, uh, a spouse, a parent, um, and I would even say an agent, especially if it's an agent you've had for 30 years and you finally won an Oscar, uh, I feel like that's perfectly appropriate and there's a way to do that and to do it quickly and then do all of the other things that Scott is talking about. I realize that's a tall order, um, but I think you can do it and still be personal and spontaneous and interesting. Um, and I mean, I think that when people thank other people for Oscars, it, it also is a demonstration of what a collaborative medium it is and the fact that you know, nobody wins an Academy Award just by being great on their own. It, it takes a whole team of people and other people they've worked on a movie with to really make a performance or uh, a work of art. So, uh, so I don't have a problem with thanking other people as long as it's done in a concise fashion. And I think that's where people have a problem. And frankly, um, I'm a little bit worried this year in particular about Patricia Arquette because uh, at, in the previous award ceremonies that I've seen, she's She's been getting out that sad little crumpled piece of paper and, and reading, uh, reading names. And, um, and the last thing I want to see is a sad crumpled piece of paper. Uh, <laughs> and I know it's, it's really like hard to get up in front of so many people and not have like a cheat sheet. But I feel like at this point in the award season, especially the people who are, are preordained to win, uh, they should be able to speak a little bit off the cuff without having to use notes. I agree that they should be able to speak off the cuff, but I also, I would rather see somebody pull out a piece of paper and read a, a good speech from it than walk up and say, oh, I didn't prepare. I'm so unprepared. And then come out with this amazing speech. It just makes you kind of look like an asshole, like Anne Hathaway-esque, you know, I don't, oh, I didn't prepare. And then it's like this really, this really intense, you know, emotional thing. I would rather have somebody be honest about preparing, pull out the piece of paper and read a beautiful speech. And even if it includes a few names, I mean, my... My thing is when somebody thanks their parents and gets all weepy, like I just start crying. I don't care who it is or like a family member, like when Michael Keaton talked about his son or um, when Natalie Portman thanked her parents for Black Swan and she found them in the audience and they dressed them dry. I mean, if someone starts thanking their parents or their family, I, it gets me every time. So that's okay with me as long as it's a family member and it's like an, a genuine heartfelt situation. Um, 
And tears in general just always get me. I don't care why they're crying. I don't care who they are. I just, it's like I have this weird, like, immediate response where I can't not cry along with the person who's crying on stage. Hmm. I mean, do you always think that's authentic? Have you, there have been a couple of times when particularly best actresses uh, start crying and I think, well, you are an actor after all. Like, this is is professionally what you do. And that's just my cynicism speaking, I know. But at the same time, there there are times where I'm just like, when when they cry ugly, then yeah. I know that they're crying for real when it's when it's the, the perfect decorous right. single tear <laughs> that they dab at with their fingers I'm always like mm. I don't think for me it doesn't even matter I'm not even saying like when it's authentic it's it, obviously I cry harder but I, I have this like weird biological response to tears and I just have tears mm. even if it's totally inauthentic so the, I mean they'll, uh, they'll still win me over <laughs> I'm totally the same way Rachel Scott and I have a couple you, well you I weep have, openly I, I, at every Oscars no, I like I like the genuine emotion I, it's hard for me to tell whether it's Fake or not, I guess Tashi have a better read on that. Oh, I, but I, you have I don't a, know I do that have I have co- an accurate read. I just have have a cynical read. I have a couple of a couple of rules, though. I think one, one rule that I, I've always had is is ne- don't cry at the Golden Globes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's not the right thing to do. And the other thing is that, that I think if you are going to thank your agent, your agent needs to be Jerry Maguire. I don't think anyone, <laughs> I don't think any other agent needs to be thanks. So those are the two, those are two rules that right off the top of my head in response to what I've just heard. Okay, we're getting into fairly uh, rhetorical territory here. Let's, let's get specific again. Do you guys have like standout Oscar speeches where you're like, all right, that's the model, do that? One yeah. I really loved, um, was Ruth Gordon for Rosemary's Baby. I've seen that speech a few times. It's just so Ruth Gordon-y. Like, she just kind of, like, flounces up to the stage. She has this little high bun. She's wearing all pink. And it's just very self-deprecating. And you can tell it's very off the cuff. She's kind of just seems surprised to be there. And she makes these little funny remarks and then seems surprised when people are laughing. You Mm -hmm. know? Like, it's just so... It's very sweet and authentic. And then at the end, she's, I think she says something like, um, you know, thanks to everyone that voted for me. And if, if you didn't vote for me, like, sorry, and if I'm bothering you or something cute like that. And then she also looks right in the camera when she thanks people for voting her, like it's the presidential election. The first film that I was ever in was in 1915. And here we are, and it's 1969. Actually, I don't know why it took me so long, though I don't think, you know, that I'm backward. <laughs> anyway. Thank you, Bill, thank you, Bob, thank you, Roman, and thank you, Mia, and thank all of you who voted for me, and all of you who didn't, please excuse me. I just am a huge Ruth Gordon fan, and I think it's such a great little speech, and she doesn't cry, which is weird that it's my favorite, but it is one of my favorites. Jen? Yeah, so my favorite Oscar speech is actually Adrian Brody's speech uh, when he won for The Pianist, because, first of all, he didn't, genuinely didn't seem to know he was going to win. And just his reaction is just unmitigated joy, just absolutely unmitigated joy. And the reaction from the whole crowd is that as well. It's as if they voted for him and they're like, oh, wait, he actually won. I can't believe it. And so and he gets up on stage. And yet, even though he's and then, of course, you know, there's the famous Halle Berry kiss, which is maybe the one time I can think of. I've seen a woman, you know, a man force himself on a woman on, on national television and found it delightful because it, it was really this wonderful, spontaneous moment. And then Joe Namath didn't do it for you. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> What'd you say? I said Joe Namath didn't do that. Do it for you. Then. No, <laughs> I'm no, gonna, I'm no. Pat. Uh, go ahead. Um, and then he gets up there and he starts talking and and it really, I mean, it really did seem very spontaneous. But he's incredibly well spoken and he hits all the things that you want someone to hit. He thanks his parents in this really emotional way. He talks about the film. Uh, he has this wonderful line where he says, you know. Uh, 
in life sometimes there are moments where everything makes sense and this is not one of those times <laughs> and uh and even at the end he's almost done and the and the orchestra starts to kind of play him off but then he kind of shushes them and he and he says some things about the Iraq war and if you remember that was the Oscar ceremony where Michael Moore had made you know all the documentarians get up there and then and then kind of railed against President Bush in a way that I don't think they were prepared for and that was a little bit controversial but and then Adrian Brody gets up there and he basically makes a similar plea, but he does it in this really classy, wonderful way, and the whole audience gives him a standing ovation. You know, this, wait one second, one second, one second, please. One second, cut it out, cut it out. I got one, one shot at this. This is, this is, I'm sorry. I didn't say more than five names, I don't think, but this is, you know, it fills me with great joy, but I'm also filled with a lot of sadness tonight because I'm accepting an award at, a, at such a strange time. And, you know, my experiences of making this film made me very aware of the sadness and the dehumanization of people at times of war and the repercussions of war. And uh, whomever you believe in, if it's God or Allah, may he watch over you and let's pray for a peaceful and swift resolution. Thank you. And, and, and I have a friend from Queens who's a soldier in Kuwait right now, Tommy Zarabinsky, and I hope you and your boys make it back real soon. And God bless you guys. I love you. Thank you very much. So it does everything you want an Oscar speech to do. There's crying, he's funny. He's spontaneous. He makes a political statement, but in a way that really can't possibly offend anybody, but is still very moving. So I feel like that is textbook. Can't get much more perfect than that. Um, I, I had written down a few, but but I think my, my all-time favorite I, is is uh, is Stanley Donnan getting the honorary Oscar from Martin Scorsese, uh, sort of a lifetime achievement award. Do you all remember this? Uh, you know, he, he, Stanley Donnell, of course, you know, did all these great musicals, you know, and worked, worked with these incredible people. Uh, what he does, you know, Scorsese does the introduction, which is great in its, in its own right. And then Donnan gets up there and, uh, sings, uh, uh, cheek to cheek to the, to his Oscar and does a little soft shoe. Uh, <laughs> and then he just, then he gives a speech where he talks about how to direct and he, and then he talks about, and it's basically mentions all of these people that he, that he's worked with and brought together and how, and his job was just to sort of stay out of the way. And it was just this, it's an incredibly gracious, uh, witty, uh, very entertaining speech that I think that just delighted the audience. I mean, you can see they, they cut away to the audience a lot of times during the speech and just, it's just so such a pleasure, you know, he's such that, you know, that to me is that kind of gold standard of, uh, somebody getting up there and thinking about, you know, how to entertain rather than just, you know, being rather than it just being their moment, being everyone's moment. And so, uh, you know, that Stanley Donovan speech is, is the winner for me. The one that always stands out for me is when uh, Glenn Hansard and Marca, Marketa Erglova won the Oscar, the best song Oscar for Falling Slowly from Once. And he did his little speech and then he stepped aside to let her talk and the Academy cut them off. The showrunners like brought up the music. They were practically grabbed and hustled off stage. And 
there there was just very clearly sort of backstage a well, okay that sucks and then they stopped and brought her back on and let her her say her piece and she's like she's a very shy quiet person and the speech itself was just a very sweet meek little you know a thank you for for stuff but for me whenever they whenever they kind of break ranks and acknowledge these are the people that we're watching the show to see like in theory we're we're waiting for a moment of like connection and a moment of reality a moment of emotion from them and if you give them 15 seconds to speak and then hustle them off stage you're not going to get that i love it when they they just basically say all right matthew mcconaughey's going to be nuts for a while now let's just let him talk mm-hmm. or i it wasn't julie roberts it was somebody fairly recently that was just like the music started to come up for the best actress win and she was like don't you even bother don't you dare and just kept on rambling until she was done julia roberts did do that for aaron brockovich yeah really that was like sit down she tells the guy in the orchestra to sit down (laughs) (laughs) i really enjoy it when uh when they either basically say don't you dare cut me off like that the fat for me is what crying is for you like that (laughs) i just get i get my own little like defiant yeah shut up orchestra Well, I just think the practice, I mean, if you're talking about uh, ways to, first of all, I mean, the ceremony is just going to go over long. And, I, for, and that's another rule that I have. No jokes. I hate it when, when, the, when the host jokes about how long the show is. That's incredibly irritating. But uh, I think we, we know the show is going to go over long. Um, uh, I think where you need to cut is, I think there are elements of the show that can be cut without, um, you know, playing off. Uh, speeches being one of those elements because uh, I, I do like it. I do like you know giving people the opportunity to, to give their speech without without being kind of shooed shoot along. So. I mean, is anybody here a fan of the uh, thirty seconds and you're out the the cutoff music or the cutoff uh, routines? I mean, I no. wish I wish there was some way that we could like vote from home, like cut them, <laughs> cut them off or let them keep going. You know, like they get a thirty second start and then we all kind of decide if they should not be stopped or immediately be stopped <laughs> how do you guys feel when uh when it's like for instance the producer team or uh the effects team and like eight people get up and either three of them get to say something or they're they're all sort of lunging awkwardly at the mic to say you know i'd like to thank these 12 people thank you goodbye <laughs> like when you see a group get up do you just kind of go oh, we're not we're not getting anything out of this one choose one of them choose one of your group to be the person to give the speech and uh, be prepared, right? So yeah, I do. I do not. I, I'm not happy when it's when when five people are are each trying to get a shot at the mic. That's not not good. It should be just the one, I think. It's also uncomfortable for me because I always wonder if they've decided beforehand if someone's just kind of taking charge and the other ones want to speak. I'm always very concerned about the group dynamic and whose feelings are getting hurt and who's being shut out. And I, I would rather just have it be very explicit. Like this is the person we decided is going to speak and it's fine with all of us and no one's upset. When it's just two or three people, I feel like it's fine for each of them to have uh, an opportunity, but I feel like three is the threshold. When you have more than three, there needs to be a designated speaker because otherwise it'll just go on forever. Did you did you like, uh, Jen, those, was it one year or two years where they actually gave out the technical awards in the audience? They didn't let them go on stage? Oh, uh, it was horrible. <laughs> it was so it was disrespectful. It Oh. It just felt it was very disrespectful. I yeah. thought to those people. At least it came across that way on television. It, oh, it definitely did. I, I thought that was uh, one of one of the wonderful, terrible ideas that they've had to uh, <laughs> to tighten up the the uh, program. Uh, I mean, how do you guys feel about the when they get cheeky? Like the the year that they played people off with Jaws got so much like negative publicity. That decision, and I can understand why because it seems 
because it made people laugh, you know, and if you, you don't, even if you don't necessarily want to hear 30 seconds of here's a list of everybody I can think of under pressure, you maybe don't want to end every speech with snickering. But at the same time, you know, it was actually a movie related thing. And it had a little build to it as opposed to, you know, sort of the, the arbitrary orchestral music, which I always just find disrespectful. Do you, do you guys think that there's any room for the sort of comedic hinting that we're about to play you off? I mean, I, I like when award shows are self-deprecating and self-aware. I think, <laughs> I think it's, it's it's sort of a relief. Like, um, it, I'm thinking about like Meryl Streep's speech when she's like, oh, her again. You know, I enjoy when they have speeches like that. I enjoy when the, the show is, is tongue-in-cheek and, and self-aware, you know, about what's going on. So, that I mean, it, doesn't, it didn't bother me, but I see what you're saying in terms of like, is it a little snarky? Is it a little offensive to the people that are speaking? You know, I thought the Jaws thing was maybe a little a little much just because it, it heightened in a situation where you're already a little bit nervous. It, it heightened sort of the the pressure on the speakers, I think. But um, but I agree that, you know, I think the Academy Awards more than any other award ceremony just takes itself incredibly seriously. And you, and you just get that sense that everybody feels like they have to, you know, behave like they're in an episode of Downton Abbey when they're when they're up there. And so whatever can be done to puncture that balloon a little bit, um, I, I always think is, is a welcome thing. So uh, maybe the Jaws theme wasn't quite right, but something like that I don't really have a problem with. All right. Well, the beautiful models are standing behind each of you to take you awkwardly by the arm and lead you to the green room where Benedict Cumberbatch will try to get into a picture behind you. Thank you all for uh, for participating in this conversation. And uh, I hope we get some good speeches at the Oscars this year. Indeed. They're for the right people. Naturally, The Dissolve is excited to see the approach of the biggest film of the year helmed by one of our most important auteurs. I'm talking, of course, about Hot Tub Time Machine 2, directed by Steve Pink, whose previous directing credits include 2014's About Last Night, some episodes of Children's Hospital, and uh, well, mostly Hot Tub Time Machine <laughs> 1. Um, Pink is back for the sequel, and so are stars Craig Robinson, Rob Corddry, and Clark Duke. But the big obvious gap in the casting is John Cusack, who seemed to be around as a mascot to class up the joint in the first movie, but disappeared entirely for the sequel. Cusack didn't really have a lot to do as the top billed star of the first movie, but his bowing out of the second one got us talking about how we think of sequels differently when the initial crew isn't back on board. Here to talk about sequels with personnel changes are some of the same crew that were on last week's podcast, but with some notable additions and subtractions. Keith Phipps. Nathan Rabin. So, guys, when you think of, of sequels that lose people and, and soldier on anyway, I mean, are, are these films just wounded ducks? I mean, are they doomed? Do you do you go into a sequel that's missing somebody significant just assuming it can't be good, or is that just me? I don't think so necessarily because there's been some really high-profile recastings lately that that I think I generally I acknowledge to be kind of trading up. Um, Terrence Howard is, is is fine in the first Iron Man, but but I, I like Don – I mean, I just like Don Cheadle better, but I don't think anyone really was that upset when he was recast for the second Iron Man uh, and the third Iron Man. Well, anyway, same, same Don Cheadle both times. Uh, but uh, – and then also like Katie Holmes, uh, certainly kind of the weakest link in Batman Begins. I didn't really mind her performance, but Maggie Gyllenhaal is certainly trading up there. So those are two instances where – no, not really. How about how about you, Nathan? Uh, do you see it as sort of a wounded ducks going in? I, I do. I agree with you uh, for the most part, Natasha. Uh, and I can think of two movies where they uh, sort of broadcast uh, to 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 the farthest recent of outer space that these movies were going to suck. One of which was a movie called Blues Brothers Two Thousand. Oh my goodness! You you know who was a little bit important to the Blues Brothers franchise? A gentleman named John Belushi. So uh, Dan Aykroyd. 
I guess was feeling very sad and nostalgic. Maybe he was visiting John Belushi's grave every day and decided, you know what? I need to bring back these characters 18 years mm-hmm. after the original film. So it wasn't just, uh, and you figure the natural move would go to his even more talented brother, James. <laughs> but I guess, you know, Dan Aykroyd did not want to just be uh, wiped out and, and have every scene stolen uh, by the most talented uh, comedic performer of his day. So instead they had Joe Morton uh, as, as great actor. But he was just kind of the black guy. Uh, they had a kid. Uh, they had John Goodman. I mean, if the movie was any more <laughs> ridiculous, any more overcompensating, their attempts to be like John Belushi is not here. Uh, there would have been like the Great Gazoo, and they would have had a talking dog. Uh, so a that talking was dog? That's one, a talking dog. That's one that really sticks out in my mind. Another would be the movie Caddyshack Two, mm. uh, where they lost two somewhat important uh, members of the cast in Ronnie Dangerfield and Bill Murray, uh, actors. Some people enjoy, and they're like, "Yeah, how about Randy Quaid?" Uh, and now, yeah, that did that did not work. Nor casting Dan Aykroyd uh, to 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 get back there, and probably the most ridiculous case of uh, recasting uh, in a sequel not working would be a movie that I'm kind of obsessed with called uh, Easy Rider: The Ride Back, <laughs> where uh, the charismatic Peter Fonda, the charismatic Dennis Hopper, and the brilliant uh, Jack Nicholson were replaced literally by the lawyer who sued to get the rights to make a sequel to easy rider and then cast himself in the lead role because he kind of if you're like half blind uh and really really drunk he kind of looks like peter fonda so those would be three instances that seems like of, a qualification to me i mean if you're yeah. half drunk and really blind i look like peter fonda can i be in the next easy rider movie? I, I think so there it's the trilogy needs to uh needs to come to a conclusion and i think maybe an all-female reboot uh is just just what they need it's gonna be it's gonna be me and, and tina fey and melissa mccarthy okay. <laughs> well oh, all right so you're talking about a bunch of different phenomena there i i admit that as disastrous as as blues brothers 2000 was i i would definitely i I thought you you, uh misspoke uh triumphant (laughs) as triumphant as it was uh in a disastrous way i guess i do give uh there's so many different things going on here um (laughs) i'm more likely to give a sequel a pass when it's missing key personnel if it's missing key personnel because they're dead as opposed to they looked at the script and said i wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole there is a much bigger question, I think, about having bringing in another actor to take over a character's like signature role, something you know, like the Blues Brothers, where they were created by those individuals. They they weren't characters like uh, the X Men characters or James Bond or Batman or anybody from that franchise that you could just bring somebody else in. It can be rebooted countless times. Exactly, you can't really reboot. This is my signature character that I created. So you know, for me at least. The feeling is that a sequel can replace any number of personnel as long as it there's still some hint that they're doing it for artistic reasons right, as opposed right. to money reasons or the crazy I, I mean a Blues Brothers 2000 was just sort of this crazy act of ambition almost um, this idea that you know they could they could get together a really good concert film but somehow it needed the framing story of of the Blues Brothers in order to happen because there's some great uh, musical performances in that and it's still such a toxic movie. Yeah. So I uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess when when I first thought about this segment, I was thinking about things like American Psycho Two, no. where you know you have a, a really successful film like aesthetically on a lot of different levels, and then you come in without the actor, without the writer, without the source material, without the star, and you end up with something that that barely looks like a sequel at all. 
Um, and then you dispose of the main character from the first film in a half-handed way from behind with a different actor and then just kind of move on. I mean, that's often how I see sequels if they're still made within the lifetime of, of the people who originated those roles. So, but you, you guys are opening up a lot of different fields here. I mean, do you, that, do you think of it as that nuance or is it better just go in with an open mind regardless? I'm, I'm always in favor of, of an open mind. I mean, and, and, you know, sometimes things happen that you don't even really think about anymore. Like, like uh, it was kind of a big deal that Richard S. Castellano didn't come back for the second Godfather film. He wanted too much money apparently. And um, they just sort of, cut his you know cut had him die between movies and and have another character kind of assume the role that he would have taken and i don't think anyone really you know thinks about godfather 2 as as sort of a lesser proposition because because of that but on the other hand when when uh robert duvall uh, opted out of godfather part three that seemed to be more of an indicator like eh, i don't know about this one yeah well they also they replaced him with george hamilton right um, so, so the gulf between uh, Robert Duvall and George Hamilton, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty. Uh, One of them has a better result. tan, though. That's true, and also, you know, kind of the gulf between uh, Godfather Part Two uh, and Godfather Part Three. Uh, there are some instances where it works. Kind of now, one that I, I kind of springs to mind is Nicolas Cage as uh, Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans, which is a very, very strange movie where it's technically, theoretically, a follow up to. Uh, the Bad Lieutenant, uh, I believe Werner Herzog's like, I have not even seen that movie. I don't even know what that movie is yeah, about. That's really tenuous uh, related, uh, to, yeah, I, related to the first I've one. I've never even picked up the video. Uh, it's like such it seems, a weird thing because it's, right. like, it's almost like he's he really caviled on whether it's meant as a sequel or a remake or a reboot. Or, or it's something that has of, nothing to do with it. It's just yeah, kind of exactly. like, it's just a name. Because I think that's part of it. There are just certain names that like mean a lot to home video. And I think that kind of explains why you have Samantha Darko. Why you have... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, Roadhouse too. I have all of these movies. Like, uh, Starship Troopers, I think, is like up to up to fourteen. Did you know there uh, are, are three Dragonheart movies at this point? Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Where did you Where did you learn that, Keith? Uh, press releases I get in my email. Oh, <laughs> so not from uh, two podcasts ago then. Oh, that's right. We do. <laughs> Wait, did I bring it up too? No, no, it came in the. No, no, it it, it came up in the. Uh, in the quiz, and it was, it was oh, very that's contentious. Right. And it comes up a yeah, lot yeah. Of, on your Dragonheart cast. Yeah, I, I, uh, you're I, always talking about it. there are three of them. <laughs> Resident Dragonheart obsessive, even though yeah. I've never seen any of those movies. All right, carry they on. Just keep, <laughs> they keep replacing the dragon in that movie like every time. This is, is going to be my. They new. replace the the dragon with uh, with Roger Moore, and then George Lazenby. <laughs> and then, I'm going uh, to sneak a uh, dragon, Dragonheart reference into every single podcast. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the plan from now on. That's what we're doing. The heart of a dragon. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and the mind of a dragon hired obsessive. What, 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 <laughs> How to train your dragon? What heart. were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent question. Well, we seem to have moved on to the sequel without actually holding on to any of the topic from yeah. the previous uh, subject. <laughs> no, I, I mean, can you think of of any case where you actually looked forward to a sequel? that didn't have the uh, the original personnel involved because of the new personnel involved. I mean, I sort of look at, like, the Aliens films, for instance, which have maintained a certain continuity with uh, Sigourney Weaver, but have been through a series of directors uh, and a series of actors. And I see a lot of different things going on there. One is different people trying to put a, their distinct take on a, a very specific franchise. But another is just... You know, in Alien 3, they killed off two of the main characters from Aliens 2 simply because the actors weren't available. And at that point, at the point where you start 
warping narrative and warping your world to accommodate for real world things like he wanted too much money or he's shooting something else. Michael Caine can't accept the Oscar because he's off making Jaws, Jaws 4. <laughs> That's the point where it starts to it starts to bother me a little. And I'm glad Scott's not in the room because he'd be throwing things across the table at me for, for bringing in extra textuals. <laughs> but at the point where I become aware of those things, that's where it starts to bother me a little bit. Well, I think the only key personnel in the Alien films is, are, are Sigourney Weaver and the Alien. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but, but I get your meaning uh, where, where, you know, with those... With those films, it's like it's kind of it's kind of exciting each time that there's a chance to kind of hit the reset button. It's kind of a different film, but with Sigourney Weaver and the Alien. Uh, although I think Gambit only really worked for them on the, on the first sequel. Uh, three, three, and four are kind of interesting films that that don't quite work or don't work at all, depending on, on uh, how you look at them. Yeah, I'm just wondering if there are, if there are cases that you can think of where you you kind of said, oh well the aliens franchise is coming back in a, in a way with Prometheus and it's, it's breaking continuity and it's a completely different cast, but it's exciting because I'm getting to see, I'm getting to see Ridley Scott come back. I'm getting to see uh, the, like this world taken up again when the personnel change is just more a matter of, of era or of telling an entirely new story. Does that excite you even though you're just, you're seeing like the latest in a franchise? Well, I, would, I have not seen it, uh, but the fact that Mark Wahlberg uh, took over for Shia LaBeouf uh, was actually would make me more inclined to see uh, the Transformers Four, <laughs> as if I was inclined to see it at all, just because I think uh, Mark Wahlberg is a more appealing uh, actor, more appealing presence uh, than Shia LaBeouf. Um, I was thinking of the Star Trek reboot with J.J. Abrams, oh, yeah, where yeah. probably more as fond as i am of next generation i felt like the that film series especially by, by the last one had gotten completely played out and it's kind of interesting to see someone hit their, their reset button on that and, and uh more excited about that prospect than i would have been of another next generation movie yeah and i feel the way kind of about uh, the x-men where god by x-men the last stand and then the uh wolverine motion picture got it was just starting to seem uh, pretty pretty stale uh, pretty desperate and then just kind of hitting the reset button and having sexy young people uh <laughs> cast in place of kelsey Grammer. Uh, i would just like to say for a record that i think sexy young people should always be cast instead of uh, kelsey Grammer. <laughs> at the same time though i mean is anybody here going to argue that there's a certain prestige in bringing back the people from the original especially over over the course of a long period you know when you're when you're making a sequel to chinatown so many years later and you can say you're bringing back Jack Nicholson. I mean, it seems to me that that it puts a stamp of validation on it, regardless of how long it's been or what's happened in the interim or whether Chinatown needed a sequel. I, like, I, it just seems to me that there's a, a recognition there that, that having the key personnel means something, you know, no matter what. Well, I think it makes it more uh, more authentic. I think there is an innate authenticity when you have the same creative team coming back. And even with The Two Jakes, which was not a great motion picture, uh, but you had Robert Town, you had Jack Nicholson. Think about, like, uh, Last Picture Show and then Texas fell. Like, the whole gang returned. Uh, and the world did not go gaga uh, about the movie the way it did the first time. But you certainly could not say that, you know, it was an inauthentic sequel or that, it, you know, they were just kind of doing it for the money. Uh, so, yeah, I think it definitely is a huge, huge boon when you get the, the right people to come back, uh, even if it's, you know, friggin' Indiana Jones. And he's <laughs> grumpy as hell uh, in Indiana Jones uh, for, 
Well, he's I, grumpy as hell in Expendables three. And that's kind of in some. It's often true, no matter what sort of movie. Like D- Dumb and Dumber two certainly had more prestige attached to it <laughs> than Dumb and does, <laughs> Dumb yes. and Dumberer when Harry met Lloyd, which was sort of, uh, everyone, uh, you know, no one involved in the original film or, that I can tell uh, was involved in that one. Right. And there, there might have been some gaffer continuity there. <laughs> but yeah, I, I know what you mean. The son I mean, of mask syndrome. It is. Uh, it was particularly hilarious to me just the idea of of selling that particular movie as you know authentic here here's the authentic prestige of bringing back the original cast of of this deliberately dumb comedy to do another deliberately dumb comedy and uh let's do it 20 years later too yeah i know and just i mean that kind of comedy just seems like such a young man's game i i just kind of wonder if part of the appeal of coming back there part of it was hey it's these two guys again but also it's you know hey these two much older guys (laughs) are gonna try to act like they did when they were much younger I don't know. Well, I'll tell you this. Um, we'll be doing a sequel segment to this uh, later. <laughs> Nathan, you're back in. Uh, Keith, you're going to be replaced by Scott, but he, we're going to call him Keith. It's going to be. Can we bring in Kelsey like, Grammer on here? We can. Uh, you know what? <laughs> the, the heck with it. We're going to repl- replace us all with Kelsey Grammer. Uh, Grammar cast. If we can afford him. If not, Alrighty. or if he's booked, it may just be we'll have Ridley Scott direct the whole thing. It'll come out fine. Thanks for talking, guys. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Now we've come to the game portion of the show, where typically about now I'd be introducing a complicated scoring system where everyone gets a third of a point for every letter in the first word of any film they can correctly say backwards. This time around, we're introducing a very basic scoring system. Get a question right, get a point, get it wrong, lose a point. Sound simple enough? It's about as simple as getting up in front of a billion people and making an Oscar speech where you don't trip over yourselves trying to name 30 people that you owe in 30 seconds. We were talking earlier about what makes a great Oscar speech, and this game, I'd like to thank the Academy, is all about the most memorable Oscar speeches. I'm going to play them, you're going to buzz in and identify them, and whoever comes in first walks away with the gold. And speaking of audio clips, here with me to play the game are Keith Phipps, Nathan Rabin, and Scott Tobias. All right, guys, you ready for some audio? Uh, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Ready for some weepy, weepy audio? Yes. All right, and remember, to get the point, you must name both the person who is speaking and what they're winning for. Ready? There's no way we're doing this in less than 20 seconds. Scott Tobias. Uh, ben Affleck Max and Matt Damon, Damon for Goodwill Hunting. That's amazing. Now, see, Whoa. We were, we were talking before the show about uh, Keith's uh, prediction that Nathan was going to run away with this race. Yeah. And I reminded everybody of his, uh, his two-second audio identification. Uh, of the Goodfellas trailer. You might have actually uh, beat yourself. So, so my ability to recognize one of my favorite films by my all-time favorite filmmaker, uh, the tra- uh, that, that doesn't set me it, apart. It's worth, a, it's worth a single point. I'm very slow. I think this will, determine, this will answer the question uh, once and for all. Is Scott Tobias a savant? <laughs> I'm glad you just said savant. All right, moving on to number two. Man, I, 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 I feel as though I'm standing on magic legs. Uh, I heard uh, Nathan first on that one. Do you? Yeah. Okay, uh, and that would be Mr. Uh, Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe for the motion picture entitled... He only had... Philadelphia? <laughs> Sorry, this is uh, this is the one where he has magic legs, which he did not have in Philadelphia. He no. was in fact talking about his magic legs. Uh, all right, but Scott. You said you said his Philadelphia was incorrect. I did say Philadelphia. Okay. Was incorrect. All right, well, if I were you, I would guess the Flash because he, that character has magic legs. All right, no, I'm gonna guess. Gonna... I, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump is correct. Oh, yeah. Although he, if you think about Tom Hanks and his uh, his incredible height, he really has magic legs in every film he's in. All right, uh, moving on to number three. 
This means so much more to me this time. All right, Scott Tobias. Oh, no. This time. Mm-hmm. This means so much more to me this time. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not done yet. He's, he hasn't taken a <laughs> shot. Let him take the shot. Uh, um, uh, Sally Field places in the heart. You are correct. Wow. Remember, she's, yeah. she, she goes on to say, this time I, I have proof that you really, really, you like, really me. like me. You really like me, yep. I wondered if we were going to get to you really like me, but no, apparently nope. not. Not at all. Bonus point, what was her first one? Norma Ray? Yeah. Yes. In Five the zone. more points Bring for Scott Tobias. All right, number four. I... I I was looking, watching all the others and thinking back. Oh, I heard Keith on that one. Yes, but it's, oh, it's Michael Caine. Mm-hmm. Is and it? And yes, it is Michael Caine. Say but final it can't answer? be for, for <laughs> oh, well, am I wrong? I didn't say that. Uh, just but it can't be for, oh, she said it can't be for Jaws of Revenge. I mean, it, can't, it can't be for Hannah and Sisters because she was filming Jaws of Revenge. And I'm trying, oh, oh, I know, Cider House Rules. You are correct. Yeah. Oh, my Kane, God. Cider House Rules. I feel like we should play these he sh- clips He showed out. up for that one. <laughs> he did. Wow. And half of when he gets and that, and that, I think that's maybe the first time the Cider House Rules has been brought up in like 15 <laughs> years or 10 years. When did it come out? Uh, I think 99. Okay. Yeah. I like that movie fun. No, they had a 3D uh, uh, re-release. <laughs> Cider House rules exclamation point. My complex rule system is uh, is still just tempted to give you guys points every the, time. The cider just comes spraying out, out of the screen. I, I, will yeah. say, I will say that in, in some ways the most memorable part of that, the part of the movie I remember most is it has a very classy... Uh, sort of a classic font and heavy D's in it, and just seeing heavy <laughs> D's name and like, sort of this really old, old style Hollywood font was. Although if I, if, I, if I were if I were Michael Gain, I would be I would say I can't believe I'm winning an award for this abortion of a motion picture. Oh. You guys are turning this place into some sort of barnyard, and the buzzers aren't even half of it. All right, number five. Okay. Uh, oh, this is lovely. Uh, I know you Americans are famous for your hospitality, but this is really ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, I have so many thank yous, I only know where to start, and that's with Mr. Walt Disney, and naturally, he has the largest thank you. Nathan. I'm going to say Julie Andrews and Mary Poppins. Correct. All right. 1965. That's, uh, that's uh, reaching back there. I thought it was Julie Andrews, but I didn't know which yeah. one. Yeah. Oh, I just, I just that. love that, that opening. That lady quote. sounds classy. That's what it sounds like when we actually get to hear the audio clips, because you guys haven't identified them within 15 <laughs> seconds of the play starting. All right, number six. Billy Crystal. God. I crap bigger than him. Jack Palance, oh, wow. City Slickers. You are correct. Oh. Oh. This should uh, just be a video clip with a stupid push-up. It I really should that. be a video clip. Although, uh, like, yeah, listening to the rest of Everyone the Everyone hated it. No, oh, I, I loved it. One. Going back and re-watching that again, it's yeah. hysterical. <laughs> but then when he literally defecated something bigger than Billy Crystal on stage, we were like, that is disgusting and impressive far. at the same time. They night. really shouldn't have brought Billy Crystal up there to compare. Yeah, okay. Jack, Jack Palance. Moving on to number seven. I know I have a little bit of time, so I'm going to rush and say everybody, and you cut away. I won't be mad at you. Cuba Gooding Jr. for Jerry Maguire? You are correct, Scott Tobias. Woo! <laughs> that speech goes on for a while. He, he seems pretty excited to be winning the Oscar. Yeah, there is a lot of shouting in that particular speech. Well, was, was, the, was the party boat movie after or before? Boat trip. Boat it was trip? after. Boat trip after. Uh, yeah. He was able to leverage his success uh, and his Academy Award. And what about, the, what about the chill factor? Chill factor was after as well? After. Uh, yes, yes, it was. Okay. okay, you guys really aren't actually earning brownie points, so, so knock <laughs> it off with the extra, uh, the extra credit trivia. Radio, also after. <laughs> okay, all right, so number eight. <laughs> Uh, Anna Paquin for the piano. You are incorrect. Oh my god. Oh. Sh- I know who this is now. 
I recognize that cry. Are they hurting her? Yeah. Only with love. Oh, man. How could she even be surprised? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, come on, guys. I... This moment so much bigger than me. Man. Oh, it's Halle Billy Berry. Billy Birdie. It's Halle Berry for... Uh, for Oh my oh. God! I can't remember the name oh, of that movie. Fits. Are you waiting? I haven't are given you, up yet. Are, you, I haven't you haven't rescinded. You haven't. You haven't have, guessed a wrong movie yet. It's got Billy Bob Thornton in it. Doesn't help. I am sorry. The name, I'm blanking on the name of it. That, that would be uh, Monsters Ball. Correct. Oh, Nathan wow. Raven gets the point. Wait. So one with the one with the uh, John Goodman and Billy Crystal. <laughs> yeah. Oh. It was actually John Goodman and something that uh, Jack Palance. Where, where are we at? Sc- where are we at score wise? So Man. Scott and Nathan at three and Keith just went down that, zero. That All right. Just so, waited for a second longer. I'd have gotten that. Pressing ahead because the uh, the orchestra is starting to play. You're only two years older than me, darling. Where have you been all my life? <laughs> I have a confession to make. When I first emerged from my mother's womb, I was already rehearsing my Academy thank you speech. This is Christopher Plummer for, oh my God, I'm failing on movies. And it's, I'm not, I'm talking he hasn't, through this. I'm he talking, hasn't blown it up. Sorry, sorry, I'm talking this is, this through this. This is how Keith processes. Sorry, sorry, Let's sorry. hear it. Um, the movie with Ewan McGregor, and it's quite good. And I am blanking on the name of it. So, Nathan, I, here you go. All right, Nathan. The that movie would be called The Beginners. You are correct. No, it's called Beginners. <laughs> I, despite, my com- <laughs> despite my love of complicated point systems, I'm not docking him a point. All right, it's not called The Beginners, though. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Fair enough. All right, moving on to number 10. It's a high-pressure situation, listeners. <laughs> oh, it really is. Uh, imagine, imagine you were sitting here in this room with all of these uh, these guys coming up behind you at the thirty seconds. Just, audio just clip. the Klee lights alone. Are just, <laughs> yeah. All right, let's hear. There are a billion 10. people watching. Thank you. This is a terrible mistake because I used up all my English. Oh yes. <laughs> oh. All right, Nathan. Oh, oh I talk a much good for this one. Uh, this uh, is either uh, Bart Simpson after he won the race, or it is Roberto Benigni uh, picking up his Academy Award for the motion picture "Life Is Beautiful." Nathan, you already have which a point. we all agree is the best. You already movie have ever the made. point. Please stop jumping up and down on your chair. <laughs> all right, number oh, eleven. Oh no, I love all of you. I win a game. It's good. Number eleven. I use that, up you got to quote Dante now. All right. Well, it creates a certain dilemma because I had decided if I had the good fortune to win. That I would give it to my wife, who deserves it. But all right, Nathan. That would be Sean Connery uh, picking up Best Supporting Actor for The Untouchables. Very, very nice. Over Albert Brooks in, uh, in Broadcast News, which is, I think, that's the Chicago way, Scott. Do you Chicago remember his? Uh, do you remember what the dilemma is that he's talking about there? Um, they... No, I do not. He he had promised to give the Oscar to his wife if he won, and then he found out how much money it was worth. And uh, as a frugal Scotsman, he he became very very torn. All right, we're so, pulling, you know that, that one pulling was... into the end of the race here. Here we go. All right, well, I was going to give you some right. some trivia about that particular Number award. Number twelve. But, uh... <laughs> when they called my name, I had this feeling I could hear half of America going, "Oh no, oh come on, why her?" Uh, crap! It's totally Meryl Streep. No. 
Uh, and it's like for one of the 17 awards she's, she's, she's fun. I'm going to say uh, that uh, she is talking about Iron Lady. You people, are correct. Because people are like, why did she win that award? Nobody liked that movie. Nathan, I, I really thought Even you were going to hand this one that. back to Keith on the couldn't remember the film, but you you won. Uh, has, has Nathan pulled ahead in a, to a degree that cannot be beat? Iron Lady. <laughs> All right, Who's Nathan's at seven. All right, let's, uh, let's hear the last three and see uh, if anybody, if Nathan gets them all wrong, maybe we can uh, give him a run for his money here. Number 13. I, uh, I have a television, so I'm going to spend some time here to tell you some things. And, and, and sir, you're doing a great job, but you're so quick with that stick, so why don't you sit? Because I may never be here again. Uh, Keith? Oh, you know, I buzzed in too soon, because I recognize the voice, and it's Julia Roberts, and... Oh, is it what? Pelican, Play the odds. Pelican brief. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. He hasn't guessed wrong yet. Uh, was was that was was Pelican brief your actual answer? To be fair, the, the other ones I could I could think of what movie she won the, the people won for. I just couldn't remember the name. This one I have, I forget what she won for. So. Scott uh, Aaron Brockovich. It's uh, Julia Roberts and Aaron Brockovich. All right, number fourteen. It's much heavier than I imagined. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, I had a, something to say, and I can't remember what I was going to say for the life of me. Um, I don't think that ever in my life have, have so many people been so directly responsible for my being so very, very glad. It's a wonderful moment and a rare one, and I'm certainly indebted. Thank you. Wow. Well, we got through the entire clip on that. Uh, I'll give you a hint that we, we got to hear him give the speech that time. The next time he sent somebody in his place. Um, <laughs> Nathan. That would be uh, Marlon Brando. And uh, what would um, be the film for? I believe the film would be, uh, God, da, 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 that would be for um, Streetcar Named Desire. No, Nathan wow. loses the point. Oh, the Godfather. Still wrong. Wow. <laughs> can, uh, you, can we I keep think losing? Keith has got this one. Yeah, Keith, yeah, what yeah, is it? Not the Godfather, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that was the Triple X parody, not the Godfather. Uh, take it, Scott. On the waterfront? You are oh, correct. Yeah, what? Oh, where are we at now? What does that chaos uh, make out of the score? That brings Nathan to six and Scott to five. Mm. Nathan to six and Scott to five, eh? Negative. We'll Don't say, we'll I, say negative. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I love that the voice we couldn't recognize was Marlon Brando. <laughs> <laughs> he was. It was. He was much younger then. I mean, but he, he sounded older. But he so, sounded older though. I was thinking, who is like some someone who won after a long career? It's, it's what I was thinking. Yep, early you know, on. All right. Time. Here. Here's the. Here's the catch up one. Let's see if. Uh, let's see if Scott can pull this off. Uh, I am quite possibly going to play to you the entirety of his speech here. So be prepared for that. Well, it's my privilege. Thank you. Scott Tobias. Joe Pesci, good fellas. Joe Pesci, and that was the entirety of the speech. Yep. Five words. Yeah. All right. Well, that was an interesting uh, thing. Uh, we're not supposed to have ties in uh, Oscar categories, but we went through the full 15, and uh, now we have a tie. Yeah. Okay, well, we had to duck back out for a second, uh, back to the green room to be photographed with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch while I picked out a tiebreaker. Um, so we have uh, we have Scott and Nathan here standing by uh, to see who's walking away with the Oscar glory. Uh, are you guys ready? Yeah. Yes. All right, here we are. You pinch me? <laughs> what? Yes, Mine? That's you. For me? 
You're much more beautiful than you were in the present. Hey, you're pretty good looking yourself. What are you doing later on? There's a lot of people that said a lot of real, real nice things to me for several months now. Scott Tobias. Melissa Leo for the fighter? Correct. Oh. Oh. Who's Scott. giving her the yes. award? Uh, Kirk, th- Kirk Douglas. It's Kirk Douglas. Okay. Yeah. Oh, man. I got Kirk Douglas. I'm like, I have no idea who this is. I thought we were going to get to the end where she says, when I watched Kate Winslet two years ago, it looks so blank easy but she didn't she didn't leave the blank and uh i think a billion people heard her swear anyway uh scott tobias that was oh my uh, that was a glorious glorious win thank you um, never mind uh, now we're all going to watch nathan as he pretends to smile and pretends to applaud as you walk up the aisle to receive your uh, your oscar trophy congratulations nathan's giving me taylor swift face right now <laughs> <laughs> he's not happy about it I'm happy. it was an honor just to be participating well we're not going to let you finish because uh, this is this piece has gone on a, a long time but once again scott tobias proves his his audio superiority thank and you. uh yeah thanks thanks for playing thanks thank thanks to all the players thanks to my agent thanks to god and uh let's all get played off the stage And now, since we don't have Neil Patrick Harris here for a rap outro, we're going to wind up with our usual recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. Two people, 30 seconds apiece, a judge glowering at them through every word. You guys ready to compete for my attention and interest? Or did that uh, game wear you out and uh, wear off your competition? I'm ready. Um, I'm ready. All right. That sounds, uh, that sounds pretty ready. Keith, why don't you start? Go. Uh, well, Tasha, I'd like to re- recommend a podcast called The Star Wars Minute, which is one of my favorite film podcasts. <laughs> uh, and it is pretty much the, the, the it's hosted by uh, graphic novelist Alec Robinson and uh, a former comics retailer named Pete the Retailer. And basically, it's this. Every episode examines one minute of Star Wars, and it does it with a great mix of humor and knowledge. That's kind of the right attitude about, about Star Wars and features good guests like Doug Benson and uh, New Yorker cartoonist Joe Detour. Uh, and uh, it's uh, full of uh, hilarious running gags. Ooh, right on the nose. That was that was a close one. If I had more time, I would go into those hilarious running gags, but you'll have to check out the podcast. You sound like you're trying to get in a little uh, a little extra material here. It's it's not it's not Star Wars thirty seconds and it's not one minute to sell. All right, Scott, are you ready? I don't think so, but I'll try. Okay. All right, let's hear it. Uh, last Thursday, New York Times media reporter David Carr died suddenly at the age of 58. Uh, there's lots of good material by and about Carr, including his terrific memoir, Night of the Gun, but his cinematic legacy is a central role in the documentary Page One inside the New York Times, which is currently available for streaming on Hulu+. Plus. It's a fine enough documentary, but it only really comes to life when Carr is on screen. Uh, there's a scene where he sort of takes down the guys from Vice that is just the greatest thing you've ever seen, but... Um, you know, and it's been passed around quite a bit, but just seeing the man at work is so inspiring, and you believe he's the spirit of the place. <laughs> you could see if you could see Scott's uh, mic drop gesture. That, that was that was. Uh, really that was awesome. uh, I, I was wow, just seeing the seeing the the clock. That messes with your head. Oh yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's it's meant to it's oh, meant to be a, a horrible psychological experience. My heart is you know thumping. what's not a horrible psychological experience though is is Star Wars Minute. Here's the thing, um, Scott. That's a good recommendation, good polish, and uh, out before the buzzer. But uh, quite frankly, I want to have a bed to sleep in tonight. Um, my my husband's favorite thing in the world for <laughs> many months now has been Star Trek. Oh, Minute. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And I said Star Trek Minute as I always do when I'm discussing it with him. And I'm sorry, Star Wars Minute guys. I've 
I've gotten to hear like some of the podcast recently because he he has his favorite episodes. Um, I still can't stop saying Star Trek Minute, but he he is in fact today wearing the Star Wars Minute shirt. All right. I want to to stay married, so uh, it, it, it goes wow. to it goes to Keith on the on the strict right. pandering to my husband. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to vote. email uh, Bob next time I'm on this. I do this thing. I was going to give it to Scott out of out of respect for the Departed, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it is it is certainly nope. like, yeah. it's livened up many a commute, and uh, I, I would definitely recommend it's the it's the Star Wars slash Trek minute and uh, and all Bob pandering vote. This one's for you, babe. <laughs> thanks for competing, guys, and uh, and thanks Star Wars minute for bringing some much fun in my life here we are at the end of the dissolve podcast would like to thank the academy and our producer genevieve kosky and her assistant colin griffin and you the listener and all our friends at all the other podcasts and everyone who reviews us on itunes and helps boost our profile so new listeners can find us and i promised i wasn't gonna cry please stop playing the jaws theme to shut me up genevieve while i go have my picture taken with benedict cumberbatch in the green room seriously he's in every picture guys you can find the dissolve on tumblr twitter and facebook and at the dissolve.com send questions comments topic suggestions or game ideas to feedback at the dissolve.com and we'll see you in two weeks